You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. First, we're going to talk about the indices that are used to judge academics, the H-index, the M-index, total citations, and the new altmetric score. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about recent papers and articles of the New York Times about conflict of interest. And finally, we'll have our interview with today's premier guest, Dr. Brian Kavanaugh, who's the chairman of Radiation Oncology at the University of Colorado and former Astro president. Dr. Kavanaugh stopped by the studio over the holidays, and he has a lot of wisdom to share. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. One of the things that came up over the last week on Twitter has been the altmetric score. A student tweeted out a list of JAMA's most talked about articles of 2018, and these ranked articles by the JAMA network journals in terms of their highest altmetric score. That raises the important question, what is altmetric? Well, altmetric is a single digit that's applied to any publication that assimilates how many times that publication was discussed in the news media, on Facebook, Twitter, social media, and it provides some sort of measure of the dissemination in real time of an article. Uh, This is in contrast with older metrics about how articles perform, uh, the classic metric being the citation, how many times was that article cited over a period of time. There's a metric of researcher productivity, which is one's total citation, one's total publication record is another metric, how many papers have you published and how many sites do those papers have. Um, Because a person could have many, many papers and only one or two papers drive that citation number, other people have thought of metrics like the H index, the Hirsch index. The Hirsch index is the largest number, H, such that you have H papers with at least H many citations. What does that mean in practical terms? That means if you have 11 papers and the first 10 were cited um, 80 times, 70 times, 60 times, and the 10th was cited 10 times, and the 11th was cited 9 times, the highest number H, such that you have H papers with at least H many citations, is 10. So H index is 10. Um, People have talked about the M index, which takes the H index and divides it by the total number of years you've been publishing articles, because, of course, the H index is biased upward towards people who've just been around a long time. They've had a chance to accumulate more sites. And there are so many other metrics that um, you can't imagine. Um, Recently, I saw um, somebody offer the metric of the number of times they were cited per month as a metric of researchers. Um, Typically, one of the classic ways in which researchers have been ranked is their cumulative citations. in their career, and you rank researchers based on who's done the most or done the most in the last five years, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I told listeners I'd tell you what I thought about these metrics. And I realized that I have a nuanced view of these metrics, and and for that reason, I, I tried to think of an analogy that would kind of capture that. The analogy I thought of was cars. Now, if you enjoy 
automobile programs or reading automobile magazines or learning more about cars. Um, if you're a car person, and I'll admit that I like reading about it. I'm not a car person. I don't particularly would choose to spend my own money on some fancy automobile, but I like reading about it. I like knowing what you know people who are into cars talk about. I like watching some of the TV shows. I think they're pretty entertaining, like the BBC show Top Gear. Um, and and I would say that there are a number of dimensions in which people who are true automobile fanatics think about cars. What's the braking distance? How many Gs can you generate on a tight um, figure eight turn? What's your quarter mile speed? Uh, what's your quarter mile top speed? What's your time to do a quarter mile? What's your acceleration zero to 60, five to 60? There are a number of different benchmarks and metrics you can have. And anyone who focuses unidimensionally on any metric um, will probably make not a great car. You can take a beat up old pickup truck and soup it up and beat any car in the world in a quarter mile. Um, but have you created a car that's the most enjoyable to drive? Uh, no. Um, you can make a car that has great braking distance and that would be great, um, but maybe it handles very poorly. Similarly, all of these metrics are trying to capture something in a poor sense, which is what do we really care about with publications? We want people to do work that foremost is honest. I think foremost is motivated by a desire to learn something more about the world or to make the world a better place or to clarify, to, um, to criticize, to comment about healthcare, healthcare policy or, or, or the science, uh, the biology of medicine to, to lend some clarity there. We want people to do work that engages to some degree with other people. I mean, doing work in a silo um, could lead to some, you know, advance 20 years from now, 30 years from now, uh, when it finally connects with what everyone else is doing. But if you really do isolate yourself 100%, you're not really participating in the human endeavor of science. So there's some communication, some cross-fertilization of ideas. Um, and we want people um, who, I think, choose issues that do matter, that have public health importance, that have biology importance, that elucidate fundamental biological principles and that kind of thing. And to some degree, some of these metrics do capture that. Citations capture the relative impact, positive or negative, of an article. A very provocative article might get a lot of citations. Articles that really do change medical practice get a lot of citations. Um, to some degree, the altmetric score captures what people care about or want to talk about. You know, So they all capture, just like the, the measures of an automobile, capture something about the car. But merely chasing any one of these metrics would lead to, I think, a car that is not a car people love to drive. I mean, there are a lot of cars that... Um, have devoted fan bases. People just love that car, but it's not the fastest car. It doesn't break the fastest. It doesn't have the most G-force. doesn't generate the most Gs on a, on a tight um, figure eight turn. Um, it's because the whole package makes it a very engaging car. Similarly, I do fear there are lots of academics who have come to chase the number. They get to a certain point and they realize, I want to publish a thousand papers in my career. I think there are people who literally have that thought and they seek that out. There are people who compete for what your H index could be. There are people who compete to come up with the most um, clickbait topic to generate a high altmetric score. They see that as a virtue. That would be a great mistake. That leads to work that is uninspired, um, that often is frivolous, that often is incorrect or fraudulent or, or faulty, if not fraudulent, but just certainly faulty or incorrect. Um, but I think at the same time, there are people who go the other way that I think, you know, also miss the mark a little bit. They care not at all about where a journal article is published or not at all about the broader interest in a topic. 
And I would argue that that's also a mistake because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you do want to connect your work with what other people are doing and talking about to some degree. Um, you know, it is with rare exception that some scientist is able to work for decades in a field where no one else is working or participating in, and they really do have some tremendous insight. But for most of us, our work is meant to influence our colleagues and their thoughts and to spur ideas and, and to engage in this kind of um, social scientific uh, phenomenon. And and so you should care a little bit, um, not solely about them, these metrics, but to some degree, you don't want to just be publishing in journals that nobody reads or that gets mailed to you know physicians that just get thrown in the dumpster. You don't want to just be writing articles on esoteric topics that no one cares about. You want to try to connect it with broader themes, with the fields that people are interested in, what people are talking about. And I guess I come at this from the lens of somebody who does primarily health policy. And health policy, to a large degree, is good when it has its finger on the pulse a little bit, when it knows that, hey, we've heard a lot about genomic oncology drugs. How many people out of all the people this year who will present with metastatic solid tumors or metastatic hematopoietic cancers, um, you know, really do qualify for receiving these genomic drugs and how many benefit from them? You know, that's a question that I had. But would I have had that question? Um, had I not been, you know, following the fact that this is something we're talking a lot about these days, it would be nice to quantify it. Um, and that paper wouldn't have had the resonance if I was, you know, if it wasn't spurred by the fact that people were interested in that topic. So for those of us who do policy, I think there's inherently a, a, a tighter connection between what people are thinking about, caring about, and the work itself. At the same time, I know full well that, you know, the public will go crazy over the next article about blueberries, but you won't catch me studying blueberries because there's no methodologically sound way to study it. It's obviously, it's also not interesting um, to me and it's probably not interesting scientifically, but there are a lot of people out there very happy to make a career chasing that clickbait CNN article. I think those people are wrong. So to bring it back to my car analogy, I think any automobile manufacturer who has really tried to maximize the driver's um, joy of driving, which is really why people, I think, like automobiles, is that joy of driving when you're driving on a country road with, with some bends in it, um, maybe over some, some difficult terrain. Um, uh, these manufacturers realize that it's not a single dimension. It's not the most acceleration. It's not the shortest braking distance. It's not just about how many G-forces you generate. There's something about a car. You put these together in some amount. You care a little bit about all of them, but not obsessively about any one thing. And you have a really wonderful driving automobile. And there are people who love for instance, the hot hatchback, people who love a nice muscle car, people who love a nice racing car, people who love a good truck. Um, there's different kinds of people out there. And so you can you can achieve sort of local balances that, you know, that some people like. Um, and similarly in academics, I think we all have to think about that our work has some short-term impact and reach, and we want that because we want to engage in the dialogue with other scientists. Our work has some long-term impact and reach, and we hope we have that, though that's largely out of our control. We pick topics that people do care about, that do have human importance, that really do matter for our society, for biology. Um, so don't ever um, know all of your statistics to the number, you know, um, but also know that you don't want to be publishing 
only articles that no one reads. You don't want to be writing review articles in these predatory journals as sort of your career. That's also not good either. And and just like not everyone is a car person, uh, not everyone is an academic who should care about any of these things. There are a lot of people out there who are just perfect and good and sound clinicians, and that is a worthwhile pursuit. You don't even have to be a car person. And I'm kind of in between. I, I like reading about it, but of course I... I would never waste my money on a very expensive car. All right, so that's my take on the H-Index citations and altmetric. It's been quite the week for conflict of interest. The New York Times has published a number of articles on this topic. Uh, First and foremost is the article series by Charlie Ornstein and Katie Thomas, which has documented financial conflict of interest at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital. This series is notable for many things. Uh, It started out by talking a great deal about lapses in disclosure of potential and major financial conflict of interest. It has now moved into articles that have unpublished emails and audio tapes of what people at the institution are saying about the topic, which are fascinating, and it is paired with a piece that talks about one of the deepest and most problematic conflicts of interest in biomedicine, which is the simultaneous pursuit of high-level leadership positions in academia, such as being the dean or the CEO, and being on the board of directors of a large pharmaceutical or biopharmaceutical firm. The reason that conflict of interest is particularly difficult is that being on the board of directors of a company means you have a sworn fiduciary duty to operate in that company's best interest. You have a sworn duty to that company's profit. And it is difficult, if not impossible, to imagine that that would never run up against your role as CEO or dean or leader of a major institution, that at some point your institution may be running a trial that's related to that company. You may be writing editorials on that topic. There's something here that there could be a potential for your actions of your university to affect that company's bottom line uh, in a positive way or an adverse way. Um, But if you have a sworn fiduciary duty to that company, how do you navigate that? That's a very thorny conflict of interest. That's an issue that my colleague, Willie Jalad, at the University of Pittsburgh has been banging that drum for quite a while. I'm glad to see it's getting increasing attention. He and colleagues at Pitt have published articles in JAMA and the BMJ where they've documented just how pervasive this problem is and that the sums of money being exchanged here are not trivial. So I guess I commend the New York Times for for picking this torch up and and really um, showing it to a large group of people. The other thing that came out in their series was that one man, Colin Begg, who is the chairperson of of biostatistics at Sloan Kettering, is a gentleman who appears to have some sense. He wrote, and I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase. He wrote uh, an internal email that um, that was covered in the Times that said something to the effect of, I think what people are missing here is the real problem. The real problem is not a failure to disclose. It is the conflicts themselves the conflicts put us in an almost impossible position. And then I think he added and said, Memorial Sloan Kettering is not a corporation tasked with generating billions of dollars. We are a nonprofit who have foremost an interest to the public interest. And we have forgotten that or something to that effect. And in response to that, a high level leadership position 
commented about him that Dr. Begg doesn't really understand this issue because he doesn't work with patients. He's just a statistician or something disparaging to that effect. That's not a good response, I have to say. That's really a poor response. It's particularly poor when that response is directed at um, that this person just doesn't understand the issue um, to the only person that it appears to me who actually understands the issue and is actually articulating the clear problematic part here. Okay. So hats off to Colin Begg. Uh, must take a lot of courage to say that, you know? Um, it's a bit more courage than, than I have for sure. I wouldn't have the courage to say that. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I give him a lot of credit. I give him a lot of credit for saying that, even if it is in private emails. Um, the person who made that disparaging comment, oh boy, you're going to really regret that. I mean, I really think the last thing one should be in a situation where these kind of failures to follow disclosure protocols are coming out, this leak, leak, leak problem is to be flippant in that way about somebody who's really articulating a deep concern here. Um, that's the kind of attitude that's the attitude of the status quo will persist and we don't really care about this, we're just trying to weather the storm. That's not the attitude you want to have. Um, and I'm not a public relations expert, but I would say that's not a good thing just from the sheer response of tweets that I've seen in, in response to that by people who have a lot more moderate view of this topic than I do, which I have a much stronger view that these conflicts are extremely corrosive and that they need to be severely curtailed. And that I believe disclosure, of course, is an empty half measure. Um, but I want to step back for a second. Um, we. The only thing we really do in biomedicine to tackle these conflicts of interest are is disclosure. And in this series of articles, we've seen that that is repeatedly ignored. That's the only thing we're doing, but that's repeatedly ignored. Um, why are we ignoring the one thing that we're supposed to be doing about it? I think the reality is that the series is articulating is that a lot of people just don't care. They don't think it's important. They don't think it matters. Now. One of the ways in which the tactics used here in this space to kind of say that this is not an important issue is to say, one, we want academics to collaborate with the industry. This is a counter argument. So for people who say, look, should your physician in chief be accepting multimillion dollars from pharmaceutical companies while overseeing clinical trials, they say something like, well, we want them to collaborate. And that is an argument that I find to conflate two things. And if you look through the open payments of the CMS and the Sunshine Act, you will see that payments are separated into two piles. There are general payments, which are consultancies, honorarium. Um, there are payments made to the individual. They can be meals, um, perhaps even lavish meals, lavish travel accommodations. That's made to a person. A person is receiving that. There are also funds that are directed to universities to run trials. If you say... If you, if you ban conflict of interest, we will not have collaboration. You are just combining these two categories. Someone might easily say, why can we not curtail the personal payments while preserving the research funding? And then you might, somebody might say, well, that just is impossible to do. Well, that's not the case. Uh, in some tweets over the weekend, I pointed out that Dr. Vincent Rajkumar at the Mayo Clinic has overseen many, many seminal industry-sponsored clinical trials and which have likely resulted in the exchange of significant research funds to the Mayo Clinic, but yet has a personal policy of not accepting payments. And by having that policy, it goes hand in hand with an attitude that he is quite fearless about speaking out about high drug prices. 
In another article that appeared in the last few days in the Annals of Oncology, legendary oncologist Ian Tannock took this issue to task. Um, he talked about an issue that listeners will know I care a great deal about, um, which is that at national meetings, we flash our disclosure slides so fast, human beings cannot read this. This was first shown by my former medical student, now resident, Aaron Boothby, um, here. And Dr. Tannock has quantified it for an ESMO meeting that he went to, where he suggests that the situation may be even worse. They're flashing it even faster than what we had found. And we found that 38% were flashed faster than humans can read. Um, and it may be getting even faster, according to Dr. Tannock. Dr. Tannock also makes another very astute point, which is that these payments are, he calls it, buying silence. They're buying the silence of the very people who, if they spoke out about bad clinical trial design, about bad and relentless drug price markups, there could potentially be some pressure in the system to do something about this. These are key people whose silence is being bought, in the words of Dr. Tanak. And I share that sentiment. I think that that's what it's actually working to do. Now, there's another way in which I think this issue has a grave disservice being done to it, um, and that is this consistent, tenacious, insatiable desire to equate receiving personal payments from pharmaceutical companies while simultaneously running clinical trials, writing guidelines, and seeing patients, that conflict that we're talking about, the financial conflict of biopharmaceutical industry, the driver conflict, um, which is the conflict that is subject to the Open Payments Act of the Affordable Care Act, Open Payments Sunshine Act, um, to equate that conflict with every other human emotion that anyone has. So in other words, we all have conflicts. You know, um, somebody out there, they want to see their name and they want to get their article printed so they can get promoted. That's a conflict. You know, that may, that may lead them to do stuff that's not in the most pure, uh, pure scientific pursuit, but rather they want to publish an article. Um, another person may be motivated by fame. They want to be a keynote speaker at national meetings. Maybe they want to have a, have a column in the New York Times. Maybe they want to have a TV show like Dr. Oz. That's a conflict, potential conflict. All of these conflicts should be disclosed and financial conflicts should be just one of them. Um, and 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 to that end, Aaron Carroll, who writes for the New York Times, wrote an article that furthers that narrative. And I find this narrative deeply problematic, and I'm going to kind of unpack why. But first, I want to show you his article. It's entitled, Congratulations on the Promotion, But Did Science Get a Demotion? The incentives of grant funding and career advancement, even the potential for fame, can influence researchers by Aaron Carroll. Here's how it starts. A number of recent news articles have brought renewed attention to the financial conflicts of interest in medical science. Physicians and medical administrators have financial links to companies that went undeclared to medical journals, even when they were writing on topics in which they clearly had monetary interests. Most agree such lapses damaged the medical and scientific community. But our focus on financial conflict of interest should not lead us to ignore other conflicts that may be equally or even more important. Such biases need not be explicit, like fraud. Quote, I believe a more worrisome source of research bias derives from the researchers seeking to fund and publish their work and advance their academic careers, said Dr. Jeffrey Flyer, a former dean of Harvard Medical School, who has written on this topic a number of times. How might grant funding and, re and career advancement, even the potential for fame, be biasing researchers? How might the desire to protect reputations affect the willingness to accept new information that reverses prior findings? And then there's a, a picture of Brian Wansink who I don't know, but he's a nutrition researcher who apparently made up a lot of stuff, but I haven't followed that too closely. Um, but it says he committed academic misconduct. He gained a measure of fame. It's alleging that I guess his motivator was fame. Um, back to the article. 
I'm a full professor at IU. Perhaps the main reason I've been promoted to that rank is I've been productive in obtaining large federal grants, successfully completing each project that gets research published in high-profile journals is what can, allows me to continue to get more funding, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on like this. So I go on Twitter and I point out that, you know, I don't like articles like this. Um, they are, it's essentially undermining this brief moment we have to actually get some significant reforms on financial conflict of interest by saying over and over that this is nothing in comparison to this desire to be famous, the desire of all academics. And I kind of mocked it a little bit because I said, you know, imagine a disclosure like this. Dr. So-and-so received $3.5 million in undisclosed payments from Roche, and he also wants to be famous. But he doesn't want to be famous like Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey. That's just too much fame. If you're Obama famous, you can't go anywhere. You can't even have a cup of coffee. Everywhere you go, you're recognized constantly being hit up for photos. That's simply too famous. Dr. B wants to be Stephen Baldwin famous. You know, the kind of famous where you go somewhere, someone says, hey, do I know you? Oh, maybe you think about my brother. No, maybe it's you. I've seen you, Stephen Baldwin, in a few films. That's the kind of fame that researchers crave. I would say I, I joke because I think it's kind of a foolish thing to equate the two. Um, and I also, in, in all just total perfect honesty, like just looking at all the people I know from medical school, I, I would say that the vast majority of people I know who went into medicine um, are much more motivated by money than fame. And many of them would rather not have any fame at all and just have comfortable income. And that's kind of why they went to be medicines, you know, at least at least part of why they went into that. You know, this is not um, the Screen Actors Guild. These are people who really don't crave fame, I think, for the most part. Perhaps some people do. I'm not going to say that's not the case. Okay, so then a lot of people pushed back and said, including Aaron Carroll himself, saying, oh, you know, you're cherry-picking my article. You're taking sentences out of context. This article doesn't undermine. If you read later, I actually concede that, you know, this is a, that financial conflict is a problem. I'm just saying we need to expand beyond that. Okay, so I wanted to convince people that um, the smear structure of his article undermines financial conflict of interest. So how can I convince you? I have to remove, you know, the the specific associations for which you already have a strong visceral response and replace them with sort of an analogy. Okay, imagine the year is 1960. In 1960, we know uh, that cigarette smoking is a potent carcinogen. It's linked with a strong odds ratio to lung cancer and bad human health. Just like in 2018, we know financial conflict of interest is a bias. It's been linked with a significant and potent odds ratio to positive findings. You know, it's a consistent, clear um, uh, uh, dose response, uh, temporal, uh, modifiable. Um, you know, it has all the characteristics of cigarette smoking. It's modifiable. You don't have to have it. Two, it's associated, consistently associated. Three, the consistency. Four, the dose response that as conflict goes up, you know, there, there appears to be, for instance, more brand name prescribing of generic drugs. That's what Aaron Kesselheim and colleagues have shown. And temporality, the conflict preceded the the action. Um, in many cases, sort of a, a self-reinforcing loop. Okay, so we have sim it's similar to the cigarette smoking 1960. And also similarly, we're not doing anything about it, you know? Uh, we're debating whether or not we should have a package warning. You know, that's the kind of state we are in 2018. Okay. Of course, there are other things that are bad for health, too. No one's saying that smoking is the only thing bad. It just happens to be something that could easily be tackled. Okay, so now imagine an article written by um, Baron Carroll... Uh, no relation to Aaron Carroll, that appeared in 1962 in the New York Times. And this is how the article goes. And here I've preserved the entire article. I've changed some words. You can find this on Twitter. I've changed words. I put them in red um, to preserve the structure but change the content. Okay. 
A number of recent news articles have brought renewed attention to cigarette smoking as a risk factor for cancer. Many teenagers are smoking and rates of lung cancer are on the rise. Most agree that smoking is a risk factor for cancer, but our focus on smoking should not lead us to ignore other conflicts, I should say other other risk factors that may be equally or even more important. Such risks need not be explicit, like craving fame. Quote, I believe there's a more worrisome source of human harm derives from teenagers performing risky behaviors to get attention, said Dr. Jay Flyer, a former dean of Harvard Medical School who's written on this topic a number of times. How might seeking fame through risk-taking be harming teenagers? How might the desire to gain attention affect the willingness to take part in risky behaviors? In a picture, in 2008, Brian Wozniak was injured in his pursuit of risk-taking for fame. And then back to the article. I have been considered pretty cool. Perhaps the main reason I have been willing to participate in risky behaviors. Taking risks has brought me praise. A Surgeon General's report defines risky, as dangerous smoking as any amount over one cigarette. It's not hard to imagine that having even one cigarette could harm you. But let's put things in perspective. Many teenagers take part in lots of risky behaviors, like fast driving. This is incredible, valuable for them to look cool among their friends. People of the opposite sex like to see eye-catching risk-taking. Okay, now... That last paragraph, I don't think I read you in the Aaron Carroll version. In the Aaron Carroll version, it goes like this. A National Institutes of Health regulation sets a, quote, significant financial interest as any amount over $5,000. It's not hard to imagine that being given thousands of dollars could influence your thinking about research or medicine. But let's put things in perspective. Many scientists have been awarded millions of dollars in grant funding. This is incredibly valuable, okay? It's undermining it. Come on, people. It's undermining it. If you saw an article like this about cigarette smoking and all it said was, you know, of course it's a bad risk factor for lung cancer, but it's nothing compared to the kind of fast driving these kids are doing these days. And if anything, that fast driving to impress their peers is the real reason that their health statistics are so poor. I wouldn't worry about smoking. If anything, that's 20 years down the road. And, you know, smoking one cigarette a day, of course that's harmful, but let's put it in perspective. It's nothing compared to driving 80 miles an hour on a road. Okay. If you read that article in 1960, you would even wonder in retrospect if it was ghost written by the cigarette companies. That's what's going on here. I don't know if he intends to do it or not. I personally, I don't care. Um, the structure of the article inherently undermines the one thing that we should be talking about. Now, why do we focus on financial conflict of interest? Because it's modifiable. It has a clear association. There's a dose response to the association. The association is consistent in many, many studies. So many so that there's a Cochrane review on the topic, multiple Cochrane reviews, showing that this is a consistent association and the temporality of it. I mean, it's fulfilling many of the things in the Bradford Hill criteria. It's something clearly could be tackled. Now, what about this desire for fame? Um, I guess I'm open to consider the fact that there are other potential biases out there, but but you're only mentioning that to take attention away from the one thing you don't want it to, we don't want to focus attention on, okay? Let's be honest. That's what my smoking example shows very clearly, and I encourage people to go on Twitter and read this, and the majority of people in my, you know, non-scientific poll agree with me, but that's, you know, people will agree with me because they follow me, uh, of course. Um, but take a look. Read the article. All I've done is change the content, and I think it's pretty clear. It's undermining. Now, what about fame? Two people on Twitter told me this. They said, if you looked at, and I'm going to come to my real argument here. Actually, let me start with my real argument. My real argument here is that if you believe intellectual biases and non-financial conflict of interest are the biggest threat out there 
for God's sakes, just do the studies. Study it scientifically. Measure the thing that you care about, this desire for fame. Show that people who desire it more are doing more shaky science than people who desire it less. Prove it. There's got to be a dose response then if this is true. What's the odds ratio? Is it consistent? Is it modifiable? And then is it modifiable? Can you, um, can you uh, modify someone's desire for fame? Or perhaps can you disclose their desire and allow the readers to think more critically about a paper? Um, can we set a higher bar uh, for those who are have the bias or not? I mean, if you want to say this and you're and you call yourself a scientist, then do the science. But they don't want to do the science; they just want to keep saying this over and over again. It's ludicrous to me. Um, and, and and I'm going to show you in a minute why it's ludicrous. This is what s- two people told me on Twitter, and many people have told me outside of Twitter. They said, if you want proof that these other human emotions are much more important for bias science than um, financial conflict. Here's what you do. You go to the Retraction Watch database, which is kept by Ivan Oransky and Adam Marcus, and it's a list of all the retractions that they have gathered. And we'll come back to that. They have gathered. And you ask, of all these retracted papers, what percent of the papers um, there is no financial conflict at all, and one must only assume that this person was craving fame? or something else. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. We don't have, we, obviously we don't have that measured in the database, but there's no financial conflict. And what percent are financial conflict? And they say, I guarantee you, it'll be very, very small financial conflict. And I say to that is, have you forgotten every single thing about basic statistics and epidemiology that you've ever been taught in your entire life? Are you, are you really that or I hate to say it, it's a little harsh, but has your brain literally ceased to work? Because um, that's the kind of argument that that somebody who has no training in any statistical science would say. And here's why. Let me let me point out the flaws with this kind of study. One, um, the retraction watch database. I don't even think it's been systematically. I don't think it's a systematic database. They're collecting retractions based on what they gather, but I don't believe it's systematic. So it, it's in part a convenient sample. Okay, that's key. Next, retraction. Retraction is not bad science. It is it is the tip of the iceberg of bad science. It is like the most infrequent event that science is so bad and there's so many flaws and that there's somebody has decided to study it and dig and double check things that it got actually led to a retraction. Um, what if it's possible that companies are less likely to have retraction because they have a lot of money to throw behind any efforts to prevent their articles from being retracted? What if it is that the average article is not even, nobody even reads it to let alone to figure out if there's anything wrong with it or not? I mean, so I think this is an insensitive measure of bad science, retraction. Um, And I'm going to come up with a perfect analogy for it in a second. Um, Three, if you wanted to do this, you're sampling on the endpoint. You're sampling on retraction. Okay, you can't just say what percent of people didn't have a conflict and did have a conflict and draw a conclusion. When you sample on the endpoint, you have to do something called a case control study. I'll just give you the clearest example. Imagine I said, let's select the 100 people who present to a hospital with lung cancer. Okay, what percent of people were smokers? 45, 50, 60, 70, 80 percent, 85 percent. Okay, what percent of people breathed oxygen? A hundred percent. So oxygen is much more important for lung cancer than smoking. Okay, um, or what percent of people drove a car to the hospital? Hundred percent. But only eighty percent were smokers. Therefore, driving a car is more important. Okay, this is broken. This is a case control study. You're sampling on the outcome. 
you need to go, you need to find a set of controls. Look back, calculate an odds ratio. We do this for pancreatic cancer. It's Epi 101, people, okay? If you really want to do this, okay? But I don't think you do. Here's why. The endpoint of having your paper retracted, that's not like the endpoint of having lung cancer. That's like the endpoint of having, having lung cancer and having had that been written up in Us Weekly or New York Times or Time Magazine. It is a very highly publicized example of lung cancer that is occurring in a very erratic way. Like, why is that being publicized and not other things being publicized, okay? That's the end point. And then you're saying, among people who had lung cancer profiled in the New York Times, more of them drove a car than smoke. Therefore, smoking is not the most important thing we should be thinking about. I mean, this is just bad, bad thinking, a fundamentally bad thinking. And the people saying these, they are people who should know better. I mean, I don't even know what to say. This is Epi 101. Okay, you have a hypothesis. Go out and study it. How hard is that? I, I mean, what is the challenge? You think you believe that the desire for fame leads to more skewed outcomes. Take a hundred researchers who are starting out their career and give them a psychology questionnaire that somehow captures their desire to see their name in the limelight, and then show me three years later that you know the people who desire to see their name in the limelight, if you take all of the papers produced by all these people and you give it in blinded review to three people, they score lower on you know statistical rigor or they score lower on you know some endpoint that capturing that they're asking trivial questions or whatever. You know, it could just be like, if you just give it to a bunch of researchers and they say like, on a scale of one to 10, how good science is this? Just your gut feeling. And if you, you know, even choose that as the end point, I don't care. But, but it pains me to see people absolutely unwilling to study this at all. They think you can write an article that says, the title of it is, Congratulations on the promotion, but did science get a demotion? The incentives for grant funding and career advancement, even the potential for fame, can influence researchers? I mean, prove that that is true. I would love to see proof that people who crave more NIH funding, um, that they're doing more shaky science than people who don't crave it. My point here is that put your scientist hat on. And if you're not putting your scientist hat on, which the people who make these arguments are never putting their scientist hat on. They're never doing it. They're repeating this over and over. I, I, I hate to say it, what they're doing is engaging in talking points. This is really what politicians do to divert attention. This is not what scientists or doctors do. This is what politicians do. They have come up with a very clever talking point, which has an intuitive appeal that, of course, human beings are motivated by lots of things, not just money, sex, fame, self-aggrandizement, promotion, all these things motivate human beings. Of course, this is true. Human beings are motivated by all these things. And what they want to say is that these things have got to be more important. Go with your gut. And if you happen to be somebody who consults a lot for the industry, your gut would say, yeah, of course, that's right. Of course, it's, you know, I take $10,000 here. That's nothing. It doesn't bias me towards using Celgene drugs off-label and recommending them off-label in the NCCN guidelines, even though those drugs cost $100,000 and there's no reliable proof they improve survival for those conditions. It doesn't bias me that way. It's these other people out there. They just want to be famous. They just want to get NIH grants. They just want to get promoted. They're the ones who are really, you know, biased. I think studying this is actually going to be really, really hard. I think it's going to be hard because, one, um, uh, when people start looking at associations of things that are non-modifiable, other people kind of get irritated. For instance, what's the most consistent risk factor for cancer? Age. It's getting older. But if you see, you see study after study in the New York Times saying, new study shows being older linked to cancer. No. Why? Because there's nothing you can do about it. 
Okay, it's the non-modifiable. We want modifiable risk factors. Taking money from pharma is modifiable because you don't have to do it. That's why it's a great thing to study for bias. Okay, the next thing is that's hard about these intellectual conflicts of interest. Which direction does it go? Yeah, perhaps it is the case that there are people out there who are motivated um, you know, by grants. But which direction is it going? Does it bias them towards um, claiming, for instance, that cyclin-4,6 kinase inhibitors improve PFS? Or does it bias them in the other direction, claiming that they, they don't improve OS and they should not be used? Because one can imagine one can kind of make one's career in both directions. So is there a net bias? See, with financial conflict, there is a net bias. It's always towards more drugs earlier, often, continuous, forever, uh, and with less proof, with lower regulatory standards. It's all the same direction. But these other kind of human emotions go in all sorts of directions. Um, three, is there a dose response? Four, what is the strength of the association? Five, is it consistent? And six, is there temporality to it? I think people who want to study this rigorously are about to delve into a world of pain. And then finally, I think the biggest challenge they face, this intellectual challenge, is what is honest decision-making and biased decision-making? For instance, um, recently, uh, John Roberts said something like, um, we don't have Obama judges and we don't have Trump judges. We just have judges. They're doing the very best they can. And that was applauded. Okay, But what if you did show Obama judges are more likely to grant habeas petitions than Trump judges? They're more likely to do that. Is that out of an allegiance to Obama? Or is that out of the fact that they actually are more empathetic towards people who've been charged with criminal justice violations? Is it their empathy? Or is it that? Should we adjust for empathy or not? What about Barack Obama? He believed in universal health care. He has an intellectual conflict of interest towards universal health care. Did he really believe it? Did he just say it because he wanted to get elected? Does it matter? But if Barack Obama was found to be taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from pharma while writing those guidelines, I think we'd be really, really annoyed. Do we extend this attitude towards judges? If a judge is being bribed, um, we would probably put them in prison. But if a judge merely has an ideological disposition, that would be considered quite acceptable. In fact, that's probably part of the reason why they were chosen in the first place, because that statement that Trump judges and Obama judges is probably partly incorrect. They, leaders do pick judges that are aligned with their ideology, okay? Right? So that's, there's some truth to that, that there is probably likely some differences there, okay? Um, so not only do you have to find that it's a consistent bias, it's modifiable, you have to ask the toughest question, which is, is it beyond what we consider impartial or fair decision-making? Um, I think someone on Twitter just pointed out this really wise thing, which is that saying that financial conflict is just one of many conflicts is akin to Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. Um, it is a it is a movement that really is meant to undermine attention where attention is deserved. Okay, that's what it is. All right. Well, those are just some scattered thoughts on this topic. Um, my biggest takeaway here is that I actually am open-minded here, and I would love people who assert that I believe a more worrisome source of bias derives from researchers trying to fund and publish their work and advance their careers. If you believe that, show me the odds ratio for that desire exceeds the odds ratio for receiving money from industry. And show me there is something we can do to modify that desire in people. And, and show me also that that work is um, yeah, well, yeah, sh show me those two things. Let, we'll start with there. Let's get, let's get complicated later. Oh, the last thing I wanted to say on this topic. I struggle with this issue of like when when people write articles and then they state, oh, 
no one should be using my article to mean um, the financial conflicts aren't important. In fact, I say later on, you know, of course, financial conflicts are important. See, I said it. I said it. I'm not undermining it, even though everything I'm doing about the structure of the article clearly undermines it. And if that you've substituted cigarette smoking and other risk-taking behavior, you would easily see that. Okay. And this is akin to that paper I talked about a week or two ago on the show, this podcast, the parachute paper. We, we're just saying that people should look critically at randomized trials. Um, we're not making the particular claim that um, if there are negative trials for longstanding procedural interventions that we all believe work, those negative trials should be second-guessed. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion is all randomized trials should be um, thought of critically. And here, I'm just saying that financial conflict should be. I said, of course it should be. But other things should be looked at too. Why not? Um, I don't know. I guess what I want to say is that I don't know whether or not the people who write these papers um, truly believe that that position, that they didn't mean to do what they're doing, clearly. But I do think they're clearly doing what I'm articulating. Um, Similarly, let's talk about the parachute paper. If you really wanted to... Um, do a paper that got people critical of randomized control trials broadly, uh, you could have done that parachute paper as they did, which is jumping out of an airplane with, the, with or without a parachute, but of course nobody wants to jump really high, they'll only jump very low, and so by patient selection you actually have no difference, it's an old trial when it would have been positive, obviously if you had you done it, you could have done it the flip side, you could say, oh, what if people jump out of the second story window with an umbrella? That's an intervention that none of us think actually does anything. Um, and of course, if you randomize people to that, they probably break a, a, you know, 10% will break a leg in both, and the rest will be bruised and battered, but they wouldn't break a leg. So let's say your primary endpoint is breaking a leg. You jump out of a second story window with an umbrella, and the endpoint is whether or not you break a leg. That's your study. And I think this is probably more analogous to biomedicine because more of our interventions, actually, I'm not saying probably, I'm 100% sure this is more analogous because there are a lot more umbrellas from jumping out of second story windows than there are parachutes from airplanes. That's just a fact of biomedicine. We've had more umbrellas. We've had a lot more umbrellas, probably uh, 10 to the power of three more umbrellas, 10 to the power of four more umbrellas per parachute, maybe even 10 to the power of five. Okay. We have a lot more umbrellas. This is your study. Now let's make it more like an actual study you'd read about. Okay, we didn't just randomize people to the umbrella or no umbrella. Let's do two-to-one randomization. So two out of every three will get the umbrella because we believe the umbrella's got to do something. It's a $200,000 umbrella. The umbrella's got to be cost a fair bit. Then the next thing we'll do is we'll do a double drug run-in period, double umbrella, umbrella, no umbrella run-in period. We'll take 10,000 people and we'll have them jump out of the second story window. And first they jump out twice with the umbrella. And then they jump out once without the umbrella. We'll have a double drug run-in for the umbrella. And anyone who breaks a leg will be excluded from our study. So older people, frailer people, infirm people, they're all excluded from the study because a lot of them are going to break the leg. The only people who will be included in our study at the end of our double run-in period are going to be the people who somehow know how to tuck the umbrella under their arm and tuck and roll when they land. You know, people who are very good at falling from a second-story window successfully while carrying that umbrella. And maybe some of them will be so clever they don't even deploy the umbrella because it's just a nuisance up there. And now you'll take those people and you'll randomize them to keep the umbrella or go back to no umbrella. And maybe in a few people who go back to no umbrella, it breaks their form and they break their leg. And therefore, you show umbrella, second story window, less likely to break a leg. Now you mandate CMS to pay for it. And there's no negotiating on that price. And every year, we're going to mark up that price of that umbrella 20%. Boom. You publish that in the BMJ Christmas issue. And then you say, the purpose of our publication was just to get people to think critically about randomized trials. And just because they're positive doesn't mean they're really positive, right? 
my point here. They're not doing that. They're doing one thing, but not the other thing. They're doing the one thing, an intervention of indisputable benefit that has a null trial because nobody were willing to actually test it rigorously, which is the classic objection to courage and oat and, and orbita, these negative seminal cardiology trials. But they are not doing my umbrella study, which looks a whole lot like a class of heart failure medications that has a level one level recommendation from the Cardiology Association. They're not doing that study. They're not doing a negative intervention, a likely futile intervention that only achieved a positive result through a concocted trial, okay? Similarly, the Aaron Carroll article systematically over and over contrasts financial conflict with other biases, which much be bigger, much be bigger, even though no evidence is ever produced to show the odds ratio of those biases. And therefore, what are we left to think? As long as there's lots of biases out there, there's no reason in dealing with one. As long as your whole house is messy, why vacuum just one rug? Well, in this particular case, this is the only association that is clearly modifiable, that is clearly associated, that clearly has a dose response, is clearly consistent, is clearly temperable, and clearly just doesn't need to exist. It just simply can be curtailed. And that does not imply research funding, just the personal payments. So that's my thought on financial conflict of interest and why it is so thorny. And we've eaten up too much time of this week's plenary session, so there's a few other things I want to talk about, but I'll probably talk about them next week. So stay tuned. And now, instead, we're going to go straight to the interview with Dr. Brian Kavanaugh. All right, I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Brian Kavanaugh. Dr. Kavanaugh is the chairman of radiation oncology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Center. Uh, he is a practicing radiation oncologist. He has a long career in academic medicine, and he's going to share some of those insights with us today. Oh, I should also mention, of course, he was very recently the ASTRO, which is their professional organization, president. Dr. Kavanaugh did his medical school at Tulane University in New Orleans, and he's from New Orleans. Is that correct? That is correct. That's correct. Then you went on to do your residency at Duke University. Then you spent a few years in that area. Uh, by that I mean south of Washington, D.C., when you moved up to Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. After a while there, you moved to the University of Colorado. Uh, and you moved to be the, to be the chairperson. No, I was a bit more junior at the time. I see. It, it was... A good time to make a move. It was after about seven or eight years in Virginia, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of us come to those milestones in the career at maybe seven or ten year cycles, and need to look around and scan the horizon and see if there's maybe another opportunity, time to make a move. And so that is the right. It was the right time for me, and it was a very attractive place to go at the time. It was mm-hmm. very much a very much a wide open feel. There was a new facility and a very energetic vibe. The cancer center director there is a very dynamic and charismatic individual named Paul Bunn who Mm -hmm. really had done a good job of establishing a wonderful multidisciplinary environment and so I was just lucky to be more or less in the right place at the right time it worked out well for me to make a move and uh, it's been a good ride I see so that was how many years ago now Ah, that was 2001, which I can timestamp because it was the year of 9-11. I got there shortly before then, so I, I can't remember exactly where I was at that time, for I sure. I see. 
And uh, and then uh, and then how many years into your tenure there did you uh, did you become the chairperson? I became interim late 2014, and then permanent chair, if you will, because of course nothing's ever permanent, and uh-huh. that could change any minute. But uh-huh. that was in early 2016. I see. And that was 2016 was year was the year of your Astro presidency. It was. So the 2016, well, 2016, 2017 year, culminating in the 2017 meeting where you were a wonderful keynote oh, speaker. I must say it was the highlight of the show. Oh, thank you. I, very I, kind. I was really thrilled that we were able to get you there. I'll, I'll and, pay for that later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it was a fantastic show. You know, I think that was really good. And I, and I hope that uh, it might have helped people begin to... Well, I don't want to take any credit because you've had a fantastic career of your own, okay? But I mean, I think you were you were still maybe transitioning from this, with all due respect, mm-hmm. creature of Twitter, um, <laughs> That's right, yeah. you know, world pundit, cyber pundit, uh-huh. and and I think a lot of people knew you a little bit from your papers. More and more from Twitter. More from Twitter, probably. That's true. And then I would hope people would then begin to take the time to watch some of your lectures because the talk you gave there was fantastic. And oh, thank you. It's very kind. If, if you download it and see it, you, you could appreciate immediately that when you approach a topic, it's with academic integrity and depth of understanding and sophistication of statistics and all those sorts of things. So for those of you who might not have known your full, the full, the full spectrum of Vinay uh-huh. Prasad, uh-huh. I hope it, but anyway, now it's, I'm really excited that you're branching out into new media and you're doing a great job with this uh, thank podcast. Thank you, it's very kind. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, I, I like social media a great deal, and we're going to talk about that. Um, and uh, but I do think you're right in the sense that a lot of people can be come across as unidimensional, uh, and that's in part because when you are tweeting, you want to just get right to the punchline, and sure. you don't want to, you know, and you can't always present all the nuance and caveats and that sort of thinking, and um, and also all of the evidence that goes into your thinking. But with a lecture, of course, you can do more, and with a podcast, you can do a lot. Uh, so that's a that's something I've been enjoying. Um, but I appreciate the opportunity to speak there. It was a great, great meeting, and um, I, I think it um, it did introduce me to a lot of people in radiation oncology. Uh, some of whom I, you know, we've collaborated a little bit on some of these projects, um, looking at social media and Twitter and well, you, you definitely have a fan base within the field. You no, have, that's good. I would say you have. Uh, Maybe protege is a strong word, but there are those who are emulating how, how you've approached it, and I think in a good way, the, the, uh-huh. in, in the sense of wanting to share frank and honest opinions and put some occasional contrarian thoughts out there, and it's really okay to be iconoclastic at, at times when appropriate. Now, before we uh, started recording, we were talking a little bit about um, social media and Twitter, yes. and, and you're also on Twitter, and, and tell listeners what your handle is. It's very boring, but it was intentional. It's a mask. It's just BK radiation. And and the reason I did that was almost, it was to remind myself that at the moment I was entering that space, it was as a representative of an organization, really. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was going to get instant, you know, a certain number of followers just because of that, that particular, you know, platform that I had at the moment. And that's okay. And I, you know, maybe have warmed up to it a little bit and tried to be, uh, you know, more and more communicative in, in various different ways. But understanding, of course, that in that role, I, I, I'm very much promoting an agenda. I mean, not, not a bad agenda. You're a diplomat for your organization. I suppose so. And I, I don't mean to be sounding self-important in that regard. No, but, but I mean, you, like, you're an ambassador for Astro, and that's how you saw yourself in social media. I, I did. And yeah. so with it, with the revised strategic plan, which includes things like promoting diversity and equality and things like that, so I really I want to do that. There are some really mm-hmm. fantastic rising stars who are female radiation oncologists whom I wanted to 
really celebrate their accomplishments and promote that. So I spend a certain amount of time doing that, retweeting their things, just complimenting them, which is really important because it's, it's a fantastic thing. So there's that. I, you know, I've occasionally stepped into one or two contentious debates <laughs> and tried to maybe moderate or mitigate the tension mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. and just sort of you know, recognize draw well, some sort of compromise middle line or uh, yeah a little bit of that or diffuse some of the uh the tension and bring it back to the issue that kind of thing i've seen you like that like a, a elder statesman it seems uh, i guess uh, so yeah. yeah elder more and more elder by the minute there's <laughs> a funny thing about that yeah so but i do i do aspire you know i I've, as we were joking beforehand maybe in a year or two when i can shed that particular mask and go out there in the world as the real person maybe I'll really cut loose I don't know maybe not (coughs) I might not have the guts but we'll see I don't know I think it's interesting though because I I didn't share you my thoughts on it but I do think it is a little bit of um, you're coming to Twitter sort of at a at a having achieved a lot in your career Uh, a lot of us you know it was something that we started doing when we were fellows right you know so we're at the very beginning I think that kind of arc is it's a very different arc Uh, I think um, people who may have achieved a lot already are naturally a little bit more reticent about you know newer forms of media uh, than people who have nothing to lose so to speak yeah I guess so I think there's some truth to that sure I guess I would say that there were moments earlier in my career when I I, to be honest, wrote a few things that might have annoyed some people, uh-huh. uh, some editorials and some position statements and whatnot. Of course, it's, what can I say? Those get buried in letters to the editor and journals that no one reads. So, <laughs> but, but that's the difference, right? Yeah. That's the difference between social media because um, those things were buried and people didn't read yeah. them. And now we, they, we finally see those kind of really getting amplified often. Yeah. No, it's a good thing. And I, I think the openness and transparency is really good. You're right. Because I, I, right, the, the they were largely buried, except for the few people who sent me death threats and things like that. But apart from that, <laughs> mostly everyone ignored them. It's true. Uh, and I won't go through the titles of the particular editorials because they would they would re-annoy anyone who has to be listening who rem- remembers that. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's why that guy didn't, I didn't like him. But anyway. But you also point out that there are some people out there um, who, um, you know, are accomplished investigators who occasionally throw some elbows out there. <laughs> I know who you're thinking of. <laughs> no, I love it. Okay, let's give a couple of examples. I mean, yeah. I, I think the world of Ralph Flexible, I mean, you know Ralph, and yeah. he is, so he's at a point in his career, and I have tremendous respect, where he really is a very accomplished guy, he's been there, done that, he really wants to say a few more things, has a, you know, a few more yeah. opinions to render, and somebody has to do that. I mean, great for him that someone says some of the things that many of us are still reluctant to be as forthright about. I'll just say that. And just so listeners know, Ralph Wexelbaum is the chairman of Radiation Oncology at the University of Chicago, where I went to medical school, and so I know him from from those years. And he is uh, a, a sharp, a sharp commentator on Twitter, especially for things that he thinks are, um, I think, bad medical practices or you know dubious things we're engaging in. Dare we say unfiltered? I don't know. Yeah, I'd say he's, so. He's he's uh, it's okay. We need that. We do need that. Um, and I think he's in a position where um, he can't be hurt. No he can't one can be hurt. hurt. Yeah, no, can't, it's can't okay. Hurt. Yeah. He's safe. So, radiation oncology. What made you go into radiation oncology? <laughs> you think it's happened by chance. You know, I, I remember I was in medical school and. Okay, this is yeah, more anachronisms. Okay, we're, 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 this is this is um, we're talking old and new technology mm-hmm. and more. So, so when I say I pulled something off the bulletin board, 
I literally pulled something <laughs> off the bulletin board. People don't even have an understanding what a bulletin board, an yeah. actual physical bulletin board, which might have had a sheet of paper with little teeth-like <laughs> extensions of uh-huh. it that have been cut out. And, and, and it, you'd rip one of those off. Exactly. Wow. Or if you were strategic and you wanted it, you'd rip all of them off. Oh, and I see. Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> so in this particular case, it was uh, it was an ad for something, a, a summer research fellowship at MD Anderson Hospital, which, okay, you have to understand, I'm growing up in New Orleans, okay, mm-hmm. which there is no more humid and warm place in the summer than New Orleans. Orleans. And, mm-hmm. and and so like the concept of going to Houston didn't didn't throw me off so badly. I was like, well, yeah. it's just the same heat and humidity, whereas yeah. other people from other parts of the country might the, not. A uh, summer in Houston of 100 days over 100 degrees <laughs> is uh, off-putting. Yeah. Not, I think that's a great thing. But anyway, yeah. it worked out well for me, and I happened to be, by chance, in this program, matched up with... And it was a radiation biology program? No, no, no. no. It was just a random medical student research program, and you just sent your CV in and and applied for this thing. And then you were just randomly assigned to one of 50 or so different researchers. And I happened to be, I had an engineering background and maybe that's why they saw and say, okay, well, I was just sticking with the radiation guy over there. I see. And oh, it was, really? It was, that, it was that serendipitous. Exactly. Had, had it not been for being paired with this radiation oncologist. I would have never become familiar with the field. No, absolutely. I see. A guy named Tyvin Rich, a uh, super nice guy. He's kind of a GI radiation oncology guy. He'd been at UVA. Uh, and then, no, sorry, he'd, he'd uh, been at MGH before he went to MD Anderson. He went back later to UVA. He was chair at UVA for a while. So, uh, no, and he was a very uh, funny guy, likable guy, and we worked on a few things. The first summer I was messing around with radiation and 5-A-Few experiments, and, uh, uh-huh. and the next summer it was more of a chart review project. And those were back in the good old days when um, we would give 5-A-Few any which way under the sun. You know, th- <laughs> there's a difference between 5-A-Few bolus and 5-A-Few continuous and 5-A-Few mm-hmm. over 96 hours and 5-A-Few over 72 hours and 5-A-Few mm-hmm. with a bolus and then a continuous trip. You could give 5-A-Few many different ways. And, and mm-hmm. I think people sometimes forget that um, you get responses over and over again uh, to some degree, you know. Uh, uh- Five is a classic drug. It's 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 a drug of all time. One of the best. I mean, we were talking about we were just yeah. in a different context. We were talking about this. I don't think that. I don't think that guy Charles Heidelberger gets enough credit. You know, the guy who invented it because mm-hmm. he was very clever when he did that. I mean, it, it seems boring at the time. I don't know how we got off on this tangent because we talked about this before. But um, it's you know you could argue it was the original targeted agent. I mean, he had he had a target in mind. Certain aspects of DNA replication and metabolism and he thought certain chemicals would mess that up he played around with fluorinated pyrimidines and Mm -hmm. um, came up with some good ones anyway it's yeah it's it's uh, it's funny but it's 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 still a drug that does some good yeah yeah and i think that's one point i always like to make is that even though it's an older drug and you've had it for years it's actually i think generally well tolerated has some advantages even to some of these newer drugs that we think so highly of like sapecitabine uh because it doesn't have the hand foot syndrome that sapecitabine you know can be can be so devastating um but let's go back to this radiation. <laughs> so, so, so you you did this radiation biology um, summer program yes. at MD Anderson, piqued an interest, and uh, and then you applied in radiation oncology. I did. And yes. back in in those days, as it, it, it what I I, I want to put this very tactfully. Uh, these days, it is abundantly <laughs> clear that the people who go into radiation oncology are the best and the brightest. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can look at it by any metric, by you know board score by publications by 
AOA, by step one, by whatever metric you want to look at, people going to radiation oncology today are some of the brightest students in biomedicine. Uh, and and that's great for your field. It, it, the point being, I sneaked in before that. <laughs> was that what I was going to ask? Know, was, okay. was it like that back then? <laughs> it's it's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. If that's it's okay. Well, I, I I was the same way. You know, University of Chicago. The years after I graduated, they had a program where um, they'll admit fewer students and they'll pay for everyone's like full tuition. And of course, their um their rank went up in the U.S. News rankings. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm proud of the fact that I went there before any of that happened. So I was <laughs> glad to glad to get in on the ground yeah. floor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'd like to think I was a creditable student, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway. No, but, it was, but it wasn't ultra competitive, or was it? I, I don't, you know, it's hard to say. It just is what it is funny because, okay, so it was before there was a match. Oh, boy. Okay, that's one thing. And so you went around and you applied, and there were all sorts of just deals being made on, on, this, on the surface. I'll tell you one other. Okay, if you must have another embarrassing story, I'll tell you one more. Uh, I was applying, and so I had, I had done a a rotation at Duke and then one or two other places. And then I went back to interview at Duke. At the time they wanted to do a combined internship and then residency program. Okay, and the internship was gonna be six months of surgery and six months of medicine and separate residency. And I, I think the statute of limitations has, has <coughs> expired on this one. I'll just tell you the story that was. So when I went back to interview for that part, I had to interview with uh, the surgeons, okay? And Duke I, surgeons. Yeah. And then just so listeners know, this is an ominous group of people. Yeah. I once heard a rumor, okay. is it about yeah. divorce? No, 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 go ahead, okay. go, go. Oh, yeah. the rumor I heard about Duke surgery was for a long time they would proudly tell applicants that they had a 110% divorce rate because one resident got divorced twice. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> so actually, I didn't just interview with any surgeon. I interviewed with David Sabiston himself. Really? Okay, uh-huh. yeah. So so it's interesting because, you know, he had, it's a beautiful place, you know, I mean, a lovely campus and, and his... His office was was recessed within there. There's a there's a receptionist, um, sort of like the outer office, and then there was an inner office, and then there was a holy of holies where uh, where he was. But you know, here's the funny thing: I got in there. Of course, I could have, would have, should have been nervous. But for some reason, there was a, a real serenity about him, and he was the most gracious gentleman, and very polite. And I thought things went well, and I really think they did. I, th- I think he had a soft spot for people from Tulane because he'd had mm-hmm. a number of people from there. And so then, you know, I got through that, and I take this big sigh of relief. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow, that, I survived that. And so then I went to meet with a fellow on the medicine side, mm-hmm. and here's where I guessed wrong, okay, because he asked what I thought was a reasonably straightforward question, which was, well, uh, you know, what do you – you know, why do you want to come to here? And, uh, you know, why would you, why would you be interested in coming here? And I thought that was a lead to say, well, it's, you know, it's one of the most wonderful institutions in, in the country. It's, yeah. it's renowned for its research, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I went down that road, and apparently that was the wrong road to go down. Hmm. Um, the, re- the better road to go down was the road of I, you know, wanted to do good patient care and that sort of thing. And he didn't hear that from me. Oh, hear the research. And so he didn't want to hear that and he wanted to hear something different. And so I was able to get accepted into the residency program. I was accepted into the surgery half of the internship, but the internal medicine people did not want me to go there. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm serious. So what'd you do for six months? Oh, well, I took a, I, I stayed at Charity Hospital for a full year. I in see. Louisiana. So that was, I mean, that was a great experience. I don't know if you ever, if you're at all familiar with that, but that was one of those of grand old public hospitals. Okay, mm-hmm. it was associated with both the LSU and Tulane medical schools mm-hmm. in New Orleans. It was this 
wonderful old Art Deco building, mm-hmm. and you know it had its heyday in the 30s and 40s and 50s when mm-hmm. when things were you know different. And, and it provided um, care for the most vulnerable people in New Orleans. Yeah, it's a catchment hospital, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a public hospital, and so it was a very um, a, a very strong experience. I mean, I got to see a lot and do a lot, and so it was it was really okay, but. But if you must know, that's my origin story. <laughs> I see. You know, that's interesting to me because I think you do hit on a very interesting point, which is that um, there oftentimes there are people looking for certain answers in these kinds of interviews. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a very quick window to read into them. And yeah. you, you often play the odds games because mm-hmm. you know that statistically uh, the classic answer, of course, you know, why do you want to go to medical? Because I like science. I like to help people. And, you know, you pick yeah. three things that are sure. kind of who could argue with that. Um, and in this case, there, there were a lot of people that uh, they would have really liked that re- hear that, that the researchers said. Can I give you another wrong yeah. answer I gave, just okay. because we're on this topic, okay? So I was interviewing uh, for residency at the University of Pennsylvania, okay? And this was, again, I'm looking around in and Oncology, and of course there had been this, at the time, there was a, a large green book that described all programs, and I guess gave them facts and figures as much as anything, like you know, number of patients, number of faculty, and that sort of thing. And so I had looked through this large green book not knowing that much about the field, but looking at, oh, okay, these are certain big programs. They have a lot of patients there, and, and this is, oh, UPenn is one of them. That sounds like a good thing, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I'm at the, interv- <laughs> at the interview at UPenn. You know where this is going, right? The guy asks me, why, why is it that uh, you'd be interested in this thing? And I think, well, I can't really tell him the truth. I have to say, well, I'm looking around at the, at the pictures of all the famous you know, faculty mm-hmm. members, previous faculty members. Well, <laughs> this place has a wonderful legacy of accomplishment and terrific faculty members and this and other thing. And, I'm going on and on like that, and <clears throat> sure enough, the guy says, he, he reaches down, he pulls something from his, his desk drawer, he, he says, yeah, you know, I always wonder why people just don't look at this green book. And he's answering, it's like, I was like, yeah, too late, I blew that one too, so, <laughs> so close. If only I said the truth on that one, oh well. But anyway, it's just funny how you look back on things, and I don't know, it's, uh, things work out, it was, it was all good. For the one interview question, I, so I think it's interesting as, as we go through our careers in academic medicine, because the longer you go, there gets to be a point where there really are no real interview questions. People already know what you're about and what you're gonna do, mm-hmm. um, but when you're starting out, of course, there's lots of these interview questions, and a lot of them center on like, you know, what are you gonna do in the future kind of thing. I remember once I went to an interview and I was getting grilled with these kind of, I don't know, psychology questions of, tell me about a difficult situation, how you overcame it, and these kinds of things. And and I just, you know, I really hate those questions. Uh, and then I just pointed out that, um, I just said, you know, I just want to take a second and, and make a little aside here. Um, the reason you ask these questions is you're trying to predict how good a job that I'll do, you know, in this position. And I will tell you that these questions have kind of been rigorously studied for that predictive value, and actually they have, like, very, very poor criterion validity. <laughs> and it's, like, actually the worst thing you could ask. And, of course, that didn't go over so well because right. no one likes being questioned about their questions. Yes. I think the only one that works is supposed to be, like, what do you know about this organization, right? Isn't that <laughs> yeah. like that? And, and I've heard that... Um, I mean, ironically, many of the standardized tests that we disparage do have slightly higher validity scores than, you know, they're slightly better predictors of job performance or say how somebody does in their first year college grades than some of these other kind of questions. And then I've heard that, um, and looking at the statistics, that it seems like one class of questions that seemed to do slightly better was, you know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning and you get paged and the patient's tachycardic, what are you gonna do? You know, like really kind of pragmatic about the job, kind of Mm -hmm. problem solving questions, what are you gonna do? but I'm no expert on the interview. And, uh, and and I guess over the years, I've kind of actually have like put 
it's human nature to weigh your conversation with someone higher than like looking through their body of work. Mm -hmm, but I mm -hmm. think I've tried like actively to switch that. Uh, yep, mm -hmm. I know what you mean. So let me ask, so that's how you got into radiation oncology. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think, um, and let me see if you agree with me. I, I think oncology broadly, radiation oncology, surgical oncology, medical oncology, mm -hmm. I think it's the most interesting thing in all of biomedicine. And and on this podcast, you know, I talk about some cardiology papers from time to time. And the reason I do that is because there's some interesting things there. One thing that they have that's very interesting to me is they have like mechanical procedures they do to improve people's subjective symptoms like dyspnea mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. And I think that gets into lots of interesting issues about evidence and blinding. And we're about to talk about blinding in a little bit. Um, but I think when you talk about a complex disease that, um, you 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 never master always leaves you humble um, is a f something formidable something and something that has great human impact and is worth thinking about and worth you know trying to do better at um, and you think about the complexity of number of diagnoses how heterogeneous it is how um, presentations are so varied how in each different tumor type, there's so many unique things you need to know to kind of go from being just good at it to being great at it, and how you know you always feel like you're learning. Uh, there's no field that's as good as oncology. What do you think? <laughs> well, I you know I've enjoyed being in it my career. <clears throat> I must say, had I <laughs> if I were thinking about it right now, it seems not so complex. I mean, I, I, I almost <laughs> it's so off-putting that there's so there's a just a flood of knowledge <clears throat> have come around in the last you know ten years or so with a. I understand that we haven't mastered this knowledge. Mm -hmm. I understand that we have more tests we can do than yeah. actions to take with them, and, and you've made great points about that in, in a lot of your commentaries. Having said that, <clears throat> it, it is it is uh, you know scientifically comp so much more complex than it was even you know I can tell you when I started. I mean it was it was it was not there. I don't mean to disparage anything else in medicine. I mean I'm I'm thankful for. Good pulmonologists. I'm thankful course, for good yeah. endocrinologists. I mean, I I go to the pituitary tumor board because you know radiation therapy has a small role to play in pituitary tumors at times here and there, and I hear them talk about all the, the nuances of endocrinology pathways, yeah. and I just like wow, I have <laughs> I have forgotten so much information that I might have once known partially for a test or something. I don't yeah. know, but there's a lot of nuance and complexity there too, and so and I think it is true that a lot of other fields of medicine are gaining steam in the same regard with added complexity of of you know the knowledge base that needs to be held in mind or at least held on your laptop for doing it but I, but I do think there's there is something existential about a cancerous tumor inside a body that might suddenly take root and be your own worst enemy your own body turning against yourself there is something still fearsome about that and I I, I know it's it's got a certain uh, you know, resonance for a lot of different people, but it's it is good. I mean, I, I suppose it's 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 often easier to be. I mean, I'll, you know, it's 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 quite easy to be sympathetic immediately with a patient who's facing a serious malignant disease. They they really do have something to worry about. They mm -hmm. really are facing their own mortality a lot of times, and so I guess we can say that that's that makes our job easier and, and such. I've, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to how hard it is to be a primary care physician. I mean, my mm -hmm. wife's a primary care physician and she has to face a lot of challenges that are hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, patients are very, um, 
needy at times, you know, and, and maybe they don't have an immediately life-threatening condition, but they may be struggling with uh, leaning towards a substance dependence or one of the other, you know, challenges you're going to face in the primary, the, the million things of primary care. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I have to be yeah. quick to point that out, yeah, but yeah. I do think that oncology yeah. is a great field. It's a great field. And, and I think you put it, you put it well. Uh, you're, you're wearing your astro president hat, I see. You're being a uh, diplomat. I guess. <laughs> uh, but, but I think you're right that, you know, I, I bet you threw us in another field and you make us do it for a decade, we're going to really like it a great deal. That's just the kind of people we are. Um, but I do think you're right. Your sympathy is high. Um, it's a condition that matters. Often it kind of trumps everything else on the problem list and, you know, all those problems go to the back burner while we deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and it's a privilege, I think, sometimes to be so close to someone when they deal with something that eventually will be so central to, I think, their life. Um, you know, you get to interact with people, and they're very open with you, and they mm-hmm. share a lot. That um, it, 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 it is what it means to be the privilege of being a doctor. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask you about radio sensitization. <laughs> what, what does this word mean? Oh, that's a great What question. is a radio sensitizer? Yeah, we were chatting a little bit beforehand, and maybe we'll talk about some studies that have to do with that. It, it's, you know, it's it's a it's the holy grail, the radio sensitizer. It's this notion that we can maybe identify a substance that would magnify all the effects of radiation therapy that we would like to have magnified, all the anti the tumorocidal effects. Mm-hmm. And have minimal effect, if possible, on other. That's the perfect way to sensitize it. Minimal effect in terms of magnifying any any of the ill effects or side effects or toxicities. And 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 we had, you know, I know beforehand touched on this because in our in our conversation we we're talking about how five FU was designed in a sense as maybe as radio sensitized to that. The other thing is that you're hoping that one plus one is more than two, right? You're hoping that you can get an effect from the radiation, maybe some small effect from the agent itself, but the two of them together somehow synergistically will do more than either either by themselves. And so that's, it's been a much sought after uh, aspirational goal for so many researchers over the past 60, 70 years. And they've come close here and there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some would also argue that as a purist, if you wanted to say the the purest radio sensitizer would be oxygen, right? Because in the right. absence of oxygen, there's less effect. There Free is, radical is formation. Exactly. Damage, yeah. there's, there's, you don't get to stabilize that. And so it, 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 oxygen itself. And so, it's, and there's been, oh gosh, dozens of studies which have tried from one direction or another to exploit that, to either send more oxygen somehow or another never quite getting it there. It's trickier than it seems, but uh, that would be the, the ideal one, right? That would, that would be, I suppose. Uh, Let me ask a dumb question. Is, is the therapeutic effect of radiation mediated solely through DNA damage, or is it thought to be mediated through other cellu- destructive cellular pathways or oh. antigen presentation? Well, everything's gotten so complicated yeah. now, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and all the things that we used to assume and take for granted are maybe not so obvious. I, I think there are definitely other pathways apart from mm-hmm. classic D- DNA, DNA and clonogenic cell death. I think we now know that in the absence of a functioning immune system, things don't work so well either. And going back to your friend Ralph, I mean, Walks yeah. Obama, he's one of the several folks who, whose groups established that, <clears throat> you know, in the preclinical sense, you, you can't get nearly the effect with in a murine model without an intact immune system that you're going to get with an immune system. So, even from radiobiology. Yeah, even uh, from radiation. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, And I think that plays out in 
real life people. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So it's. So that answer is is yeah, but I know. think that that does suggest that it's more than just a DNA damage effect. I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other pathways that are triggered. Yeah, you know, by radio. Sure. Have you read the book Henry Kaplan and the History of Hodgkin's Disease? Long time ago, I looked at that. Yeah. Yes, he's. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a book I recommend highly to the readers, and it's just because it's um, well, as listeners will may not know, but Henry Kaplan was a Stanford radiation oncologist uh, and probably one of the pioneers of radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a story of basically how Hodgkin's lymphoma was, uh, in, at least in, as late as the 1940s, thought to be incurable. Um, and then Henry Kaplan utilized radiation therapy um, and was able to elicit some long-term durable remissions, albeit at the price of great toxicity. Mm-hmm. In your career, the same person with Hodgkin's lymphoma who you'd have radiated many years ago, mm-hmm. and now you'd radiate, uh, a lot has changed. Oh, yes, absolutely. That, that's, that's, that's a great irony, I mean, because you can say that, <clears throat> I mean, to some extent the field became sophisticated on the basis of treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, there were all these very elegant patterns of failure studies to elucidate the behavior of that and how How well, it spreads and where, it, it spreads. where to radiate next, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah exactly, totally. And now it's... Uh, As you know, so many systemic agents have been refined and the usage of them, the combinations of them have been really tailored to good effect that it's... We're trying to shut you out. Understood. No, that was, yeah. that was the, we're going to bury those linear accelerators. I think that was, that was, yeah. was that, uh, it wasn't Rosenberg, it was the other guys. DeVita, I think, I think it was said DeVita that a long said time that. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll so, so we, we plan to bury those things. But the problem was they didn't anticipate that the role of radiation therapy in other tumor types has been exponential growth. Well... Well, we had to scramble and find something to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> These machines, we have to use them. Yeah, uh, yeah no, no, no. I mean, it's, but that's, you know, that's, <clears throat> but that's a good, th- I like your, your point there because it, it, in the more modern context for putting aside lymphoma just narrowly yeah. per se, I think that that's um, emblematic of a challenge that a lot of specialties face when there is another, Solution to the problem they were trying to fix, you know, and we can. Everyone's followed a lot of stories in cardiology. Come back to cardiology, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of questions have been raised about whether certain interventions mm-hmm. in are cardi- always necessary. Uh, yeah. Are always necessary? Yeah. Have they? Can you manage them medically and that sort of thing? Uh, this is an example when you know radiation. Maybe you know it's not so. You know, <clears throat> maybe not so much of it is needed in certain disease conditions. And there's all kinds of examples of where the course of radiation treatment given to a patient can be trimmed and tailored and shortened here and there. And mm-hmm. those are good things for patients. And yet those are sometimes uncomfortable things for a field to face and to sort of maybe... Some of those debates that you insert yourself with, in mm-hmm. uh, they're often mm-hmm. around some of these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I want to I make this point, which is I sometimes hear people say things like, oh, um, you know, radiation... It's not, it's not an important modality in cancer care. Uh, it's not as important as it once was. That is highly overstated and ridiculous. It's like the same people who say that like, oh, soon you won't be a lymphoma doctor and you won't be a lung cancer doctor. There'll be just like a, a PI3 kinase doctor, an, and ALK, bre- an, ALK doctor an ALK doctor, a BRAF doctor. Yeah. Um, these are highly overstated things. Radiation uh, is the mainstay of cancer care. It has saved lives, many lives with many malignancies. Uh, it's not going away any time, not, certainly not in neither of our lifetime uh, is it going away. And um, yet, if there are a few small rural places where we can give less of it, 
preserve the efficacy and have less toxicity, and perhaps a few other small cases where, maybe we'll talk about oligometastatic disease, we might, there might be a role for it where it didn't previously exist, or radiating the prostate in people with, uh, uh, yeah, uh, based on the new Stampede study. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although there's some questions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, we, we will always work on refining it, but to, to, to think that it's going away anytime soon, that's a foolish thing to think. Just as it's foolish to think that we're going to be doctors of certain genetic mutations in the near future. Maybe in a thousand years, but not yet. I'll pay for that comment later. <laughs> <laughs> completely agree. Thank you for saying that. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, this paper that came out in the Lancet, which um, was presented during a- during Astro. Yes. Um, cisplatin versus cetuximab mm-hmm. in combination with radiotherapy mm-hmm. for head and neck squamous cell cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, cisplatin is an old drug. It goes back many years. And my understanding is it was actually developed at uh, my alma mater, Michigan State University, uh, where it was a um, astute uh, a scientist who noticed that it would uh, the platinum electrodes uh, would kill off uh, E. coli growing in the dish uh, when you ran a current through it. And it was a cisplatinum adduct that actually was responsible for that DNA damage and death. Uh, and it has become... Um, uh, perhaps one of the most important drugs in all of oncology. Uh, it's cured diseases like testicle cancer, which without platinum, uh, odds are not great. With platinum, odds are much better, and it is a mainstay of therapy for many tumor types. Fast forward to the late 1990s and the rise of monoclonal antibodies, and we saw cetuximab made by Imclone. Uh, it's a famous drug because it was the drug that Martha Stewart got um, <laughs> busted for for insider trading. Mm-hmm. Cetuximab is an anti-EGFR drug. Um, it is used in head and neck cancer. It's used in colorectal cancer for people who don't have RAS spectrum mutations. Uh, and it briefly flirted with lung cancer a bit in some trials called FLEX, which are kind of some problematic studies, I think. Um, but needless to say, it's, it's used in a few tumor types. It has a nasty side effect, the rash. And the rash is often the telltale sign that you got the drug. And this is a very unique rash. And when you see the rash, you can sometimes see it in somebody across the room. And you're like, oh, boy, that person's on cetuximab. Um, Yet, it was pursued as a holy grail medicine in radiation oncology because it is a radiosensitizer. Yes. (laughs) I I think, and and I want to characterize this. I want to preface this by saying I think the people who were were working on that are really good people, okay, And, and really close friends of mine. And... One of the leaders of the charge was a guy named Paul Harari. I mean, he followed me. He's, you know, an astro, your president, and your chair for your, your immediate past chair, which means you're the crotchety guy who sits in the corner. That's where I am right now, just to kind of, <laughs> keep, just to kind of point out to, at uh-huh. the meetings. Oh yeah, we thought of that five years ago. It didn't work, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, so Paul Paul's a really good friend, and so he's one of the key people working on that. Sincerely interested in trying to come up with something that would be better than perhaps chemotherapy agents as a way of enhancing things. And so that study that came out in 2006 where it was first shown to be better than radiation alone. nothing, control uh-huh. arm, was a landmark study, and it got a lot of attention. And it was a hoped-for advance in the direction of finding new and sophisticated and clever ways of doing things and, and adding to our treatment armamentarium and that sort of thing. This is Bonner, 2006. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Second author was Paul Harari on that one. So, yeah, and a lot of other good folks uh, contributed to that. And so it's... it's um, you know, I think it was, it's one of the things where, you know, we, we, you talk a lot about the different biases people have in mm-hmm. terms of how to interpret or how to 
you know, think about a trial, I, I, w- I would characterize the bias or the, the mindset of some of the people who might have been very intimately involved in this particular thing is maybe the way that, I don't know, people are either, maybe they're either Red Sox or Yankees fans or something like that. You know, they have sort of a rooting interest in something after a while. I call it an intellectual conflict of interest, if you Alleg- will. Allegiance bias. I suppose uh-huh. so. That's a nice way to say it, yeah. And so I, it was disappointing that this particular result, I can say, was a little disheartening to a lot of people, I think, because not, I mean, OK, it's a better thing for patients. We figured out, OK, between two choices, choice A, choice B, this is now a better choice for patients. Here it is. But I will say that I think it was met with some disappointment because people thought that they had maybe gone a little bit past mm, something mm-hmm. of a more traditional nature because, well, you know, maybe always people are wanting to. Be, but be that as it may, um, it's. Um, you know, it is what it's, it, it's funny. I, I look back at that original study, the mm-hmm. study that, you know, had the control arm versus this detoximab. And I mean, I tend to wonder even in that particular study where there might have been some. Undiagnosed uh, metastatic disease? No. Well, no, just in the interpretation uh, and, uh-huh. and, and conduct of that study where it was thought that the toxicities were not so different. You just wonder if there was something of an observer bias in that regard. Because I can tell you, I'll, I'll just tell you a little side story. Wait, but let me let me explain to listeners real quick about this oh, with the trial show. Sorry. So, I guess the two trials that uh, that Dr. Kavanaugh is alluding to is this original study in the New England Journal of Medicine which randomized patients with locally advanced head and squamous cell cancer right. to radiation therapy with or without cetuximab. Correct. And that was a trial that showed an overall survival advantage, which mm-hmm. is, you know, kind of unusual for the lo- locally advanced setting. Sure. Uh, it's it's a good sign, um, as well as a toxicity profile that was thought to be very tolerable and perhaps not that much worse than radiation. It got a lot of adherence, and people really believed in cetuximab plus RT. Platinum also is a backbone of therapy, and a lot of us on the other side of the spectrum, we really like platinum because we think platinum is highly efficacious, and actually the toxicity is 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 I don't want to say the the things I hate that people say, but actually it may it may not necessarily be worse than than cetuximab. Mm-hmm. Um, the new study looks at patients with P16 positive, HPV, favorable prognostic, local regional, head and exquamous cell cancer, randomizing to cisplatin plus RT versus cetuximab plus RT shows a local failure advantage with cisplatin and even a trend towards, or was it even statistically significant, overall survival advantage with cisplatin. So cetuximab looks like the loser and it's more toxic. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that's where we are. So in the aftermath of this, you're pointing out there were some people on the cetuximab bandwagon who it kind of stung to see this news. Yeah, it was disappointing. It's disappointing. You know, I would have to say. So I would, I would say that that was, you know, it was, it was presented as a plenary at the meeting this mm. past year and, um, you know, received well because it's good science. I mean, it was, no one can argue with the integrity of the trial and it was well reported, well studied, well conducted. And so there you go. You know, I, I, and again, my only personal anecdote I might yeah. share just in you know hindsight's 2020 you, you think of these things afterwards and, and you reflect on them afterwards i can remember that i did actually have uh, a close family friend who was diagnosed with a cancer of this sort and treated with the combination and for a couple of different um, lengthy reasons was actually staying at her house to get the treatment and so i had this interesting unique n equals one observational study going on i was seeing someone who was going through the treatment and and i must say it was it was not exactly easy. I mean, it was challenging sort of treatment, as I'm sure the combination radiation and cis would be also. Also, I would say that this one particular experience of observing this patient so close at hand pointed out a couple of other, well, secondary uh, lessons to me, if you will, because I know that this person was struggling for 
23 hours of the day, but mm -hmm. that one hour of the day when he had to get up and go to the doctor, go to the doctor, he, he, he rallied and made it look good. And so I just, I, I know that patients are often trying to please their doctors and trying to, and, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't always clue into things. I mean, patient reported outcomes are, are a very important thing. And even patient reported outcomes, I think are probably fraught with. Yeah. They're trying to please the doctor. Minimization. Yeah. Minimization. Because no one wants to disappoint the doctor about that. And so I, th I think just lo in looking back at that and looking back at some of the original analyses of maybe whether that agent was or wasn't as toxic as people thought, there were probably people who wanted to be early doctors saying, no, your new drug is great. It's, I'm, I'm doing great. Doc. Yeah. I'm loving it. You know? And, and, and that's just, it's human nature. I mean, it's just um, many things can happen like that. That I sometimes wonder about that because, you know, I've been in the room often for um, some of the informed consent around some of these investigational drugs. And, you know, providers are very enthusiastic. I mean, mm -hmm. they have to because it's their drug and they're working sure. on the trial. And, and that really does kind of um, often lead someone to want to downplay the side effects because they come to be the patient believes too that it's probably going to be they're hopeful as well just like the doctor's hopeful mm -hmm. sometimes i think that like what if we had spouse reported outcomes but then i think that spouses exist on a spectrum as well and there's some spouses who are willing to oh he's fine you know it's fine it's no big deal you know they want to they want to you know take it in order to get the spouse mm. to keep taking but maybe yeah. there's some other spouse on the other end of the spectrum who'd be like this is really hurting this person mm. um but i think you know that's such an astute point because um you're you're basically on call 24 hours a day with this person. You, you mm -hmm. get to see this person mm -hmm. in a way that, as a doctor, you don't get to see what they're going through. Yes, and it probably has further and you know adds to the empathy you have for people going through these kinds of treatments. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, my experience with this drug is I I've never been a cetuximab fan because I find it's a it's a very it's a difficult drug to give um, because of the rash. Um, we use it a lot in colorectal cancer, and there's you know people who want to use it up front. Um, I'm not entirely satisfied that we have clear randomized data that shows a survival advantage to giving it routinely upfront versus routinely in the last line just for people with extended spectrum RAS negative CRC. Uh, and by that by that logic, I like to defer it to the last line. And I think there are people like Len Saltz um, who agree with me, and he's written some commentaries on the topic, but that's besides the point. Um, so the head and neck cancer study, I think it's provocative because, you know, new, sexy, monoclonal antibody, non-chemotherapy, loses to old, cheap, stupid, dumb <laughs> chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, not just in efficacy, but even in side effects. And I think that that does kind of run up against the hype train that we have in oncology. Um, it's a good teaching study because it forces, I think, trainees to realize that, you know, all that glitters is not gold. I think it's an interesting study. Now I wanted to ask you this about it, blinding. In some of these cancer trials, if we use a drug that has a idiosyncratic side effect, very noticeable side effect, mm -hmm. there's no such thing as blinding. What do you think? No, you're right. And, you know, this is an example, Cetux is an example. All those studies with radiation with or without androgen deprivation therapy in prostate cancer yeah. are unblindable. I mean, yeah, you unless, know, unless you're going to trigger hot flashes somehow <laughs> artifactually. I don't right. know how to do that, but I don't think a patient would appreciate fake hot flashes because it's nobody's idea of a good time. But uh, so there will be these things. It's intrinsically built in, and I think it's an imperfection. I don't know how to solve that. I mean, I. If you have a clever idea, I, I, I just think that sometimes you can't. Yeah, I think sometimes you can't. I guess I would say. Um, we can talk about this problem broadly. Broadly, the problem here being um, when 
When you don't have blinding, there's certain endpoints in clinical trials that require provider or patient adjudication or preferences or thoughts. These are things like in cardiology, revascularization, because revascularization is a product of how much chest pain the patient has, plus the doctor's you know belief that revascularization will help them. There's some of these kind of what we call bias susceptible endpoints. There are other endpoints that are probably less susceptible to bias, like all-cause mortality kind of thing. Um, for certain drugs, like for instance, the SSRIs, I had Eric Turner on this podcast and we talked a little bit about how some of them give you a dry mouth and then the, the thing you're looking for is like improvement in depressive symptoms, the subjective endpoint. Those situations, maybe you think about put a little touch of atropine on the sugar pill to make it an active placebo so the patient can't tell if they're getting, you know, Prozac or, you know, a sugar tricky. pill with a dry, right. That's tricky. But in oncology, I think we're really stuck with our, you know, our backs against the wall because the side effects that patients are willing to bear in oncology far greater than what anyone would bear with heartburn or depression. Mm -hmm. And it would probably not be feasible or reasonable to, you know, try to have some sort of active placebo. It will make somebody feel terrible uh, with no ostensible good reason. So I think we do have our backs against the wall. And just as, you know, testament to that fact that we are willing to bear more side effects, we're one of the only fields in medicine that conduct our phase one studies just in terminally ill cancer patients and not healthy volunteers for that precise reason. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to shift gears and talk to you about social media. Okay. Um, you have a vibrant community of radiation oncologists. Who were energized by you too. I want to, I want you to know, <laughs> I, 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 they discovered you last year or so, I think, when- When you came <laughs> to many, Astro, yeah. Many, which is a great thing, and I think, you know, some have, dare we say, emulated. Yeah, <laughs> dare we say, sought, sought, <laughs> hold you as a role model of, okay. of you know, integrity and, and fearlessness in terms of speaking truth, and that's a good thing. I, I think it's, you know, one I, this little corner of medicine is a good one. I, I like the fact that it's awake and alive and and good. I, I think. I can't speak to all different subspecialties in medicine, how yeah. active each is in social media, but I think it's been fun to get to know a lot of people. I mean, I'm sure you've met, made new friends by that. Yeah, I mean, even you're, co-authors on papers and such. Exactly, like your buddy Oncology BG, right, Vishal, right? He's <laughs> yeah. a great guy. I happened to meet him at ASCO. And, yeah, I um, met him through, I think, uh, uh -huh. Twitter, yeah. Yeah, no, and what a voice. I mean, just just look at that one example. I mean, yeah. this guy from Nepal, Kathmandu, yeah. for crying out loud, yeah. who's become a world leader in you know oncology thought i mean how did that how could that have happened otherwise I 20 years know. ago probably would never have happened no i mean and and uh and and not and i think michelle's a very smart person as well of course but but it's it's not just being smart i mean there are lots of smart people in this world mm -hmm. who you know it's it's it had it, he had an outlet for that and other people could see he's smart and that mm -hmm. didn't always exist in all periods of time no so that's fantastic and, and it's fascinating so uh and we mentioned you know a couple of the maybe more hmm, outspoken folks mm -hmm. I, I think I, I, uh, I did you call me an elder statement? I think you did, and that's okay. And I'll, 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 I'll accept I said that. you played the elder statement. I, uh, <laughs> okay, that's right. I hope so. We'll, we'll rewind the audio. That's okay. No, I was kidding. Um, I, I, I'd like to think that there are a few of of the of of the handful who've you know taken you know a cue from you really, and I think it's a good thing to be. Um, you know, critical, appropriately critical about new data coming out and, and that sort of thing. I, I'd like to think that every so often, maybe I'll communicate on the side and say, uh, 
you know, those words might have been a little on the stronger side mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, and not for the purpose of, you know, you never want to censor anybody. No. And so because but there but that, there is a the occasional line that you probably shouldn't cross as far as, you know, as you know, personal attacks. Getting and, and it too personal. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I actually think it's um, it's even kind of counterproductive to the argument. You know, I think that people don't realize that when you're on Twitter and social media, you, you may not always change the mind of the person you're engaging with. Mm -hmm. But there's a big audience of people whose mind is a little bit open on this issue. Mm -hmm. Often I'm in that audience for certain issues where I don't know anything about, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm and I'm trying to get my mind made up. You know, there's this big discussion of whether or not the hospital readmission program, you know, improved mortality or worsened mortality. Right. I, I've been fighting about that the last few days. Yes. Okay, here I'm. I have no skin in the game. I don't even, you know, I'm I, I'm a bystander. I'm trying to figure this out myself. Um, and there I would say that you know there's a certain line of like. Um, I think wittiness and cleverness the, and 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 fact-based argument that I think is very persuasive and then when somebody devolves into kind of making it too personal or, or just to say that oh um, physicians can never do this type of research well only economists can do this research it's right. like oh god kill me I mean what an argue <laughs> oh, okay oh yes. the physicians can never do no one yes. can do it except one economist on a hilltop okay fine that's yes. not an argument it's not gonna persuade the audience um, but that same person later to their credit actually did point out that I believe this paper is wrong because you didn't adjust for this and you didn't do this and that is a little bit more persuasive to me as, a, as an audience and so you know although in the heat of the moment we can all stray from what we want to do. Uh, I think I, I think you're right in the sense to say, pull it back a little bit from making it too personal, bring it to the argument, and and still be you know punchy and edgy. It doesn't have to be boring. Yeah, and I, I mean I want to point out I would not bother to to mention that to someone that I didn't think highly of. I mean uh -huh. whose, whose opinions I, I who I think has really good opinions to share and and you wouldn't tell Doctor Oz that in other words you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he follows me. He doesn't follow. Yeah, <laughs> but let me ask you: How do you actually? How do you use it in your in your day to day? Uh, you're you're a busy academic practicing uh, chairman, radiation oncologist. How do you, how are you using Twitter in your day? It is a major source of news for me. Really? I mean, medical news. Yeah. I mean, like you know the the latest you Radon know stu studies. Well, yeah. Every study, yeah, sure. And so, as a matter of fact, I had to. Um, I was giving a talk somewhere, and you know, I I started up by saying, you know, this. There's there's no possible way I can give you any new information, and I'd like to blame two of the people who invited me to this talk here because they are on Twitter all the time, and the minute something comes out at a, at a meeting, it's it's broadcast. broadcast news, which is good. I mean, I'm joking, of course, because I think it's a fantastic thing, and and that that information is so quickly disseminated, because who can possibly even be aware that the latest randomized study on some key topic that's relevant is even out there? I don't always know that, and I you know I try to take, but so no, I I find it a very a valuable source of of medical news and and you know scientific updates for me clinical updates for me as a you practitioner. most mostly use it on the phone I do and you check it kind of between things like when you're walking down the halls you take a peek and that kind of stuff yeah I don't want to admit how much green time I spend <laughs> you know, my phone keeps track before me it's probably too much I understand but yes of course no it's on the elevators and in between things and I turned on that feature and then um, I've made it a kind of mission to like lower that screen time number um, yeah. To, to to not I, I you know to balance like getting what I want out of it but sure. not just being glued to it all the time mm -hmm. it, it is addictive and and my understanding is that they actually the designers of these products do things that you know try to hook your brain on it for instance like one thing is if you t if like they del sometimes delay replies or responses or retweets or likes to your content so that you don't see it right away it, it, in the hopes that um, 
right when you tweet something, you, you want to check, did anyone like it? Did anyone like um, it? Did anyone like it? So now you're on for like three minutes instead of, you know, one minute, 15 okay. seconds. And so now they got you in for like a, a little bit more time. But I, I mean, uh, I have every, I'm 100% confident that the people who design these products have a great deal of time to ensure that the user uses the product as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And and I guess I would say that I want to get the value out of the product without being, you know, a pawn in their game. So I'm trying to break break their addiction. So, you know, I stopped looking at a certain times and I don't know, I got to the point where I can't argue every battle, you know, sometimes people just got to say something. That's, that's the, they get the last word. Congratulations. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I agree. What is it like to be in charge of other academic faculty? Uh, <laughs> is it heavy as the head that wears the crown? What is it like? Uh, it, it, Somehow it feels like they're in charge of me. I don't know. It's a funny thing. <laughs> That's what there. I wondered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, y- you know, it's in, in human nature. In any group of more than I don't know three people, there will be politics, <laughs> and uh, at any large enough group of uh, folks, you're going to have a spectrum of personalities. Uh, you know, we're really lucky. I mean, we have a really good team. We have folks I think who are very sincerely motivated. We've gotten some junior people who are energetic, ambitious, and really likable. I mean, I guess of you know, what can you say? If if I would just say in, in the forward-looking sense, I mean, the best thing, yeah, I mean, all, I, I'm no, I don't have an MBA, I don't have, didn't go to business school, but I, I'm i pretty sure every business strategy of building a, an organization would probably be to pick the right people mm-hmm. and probably in medicine more than any, as much or more than any, finding people who have good levels of emotional intelligence, who can get along with people and and uh, work in a group are, you know, those are the folks who are w- worth their weight in gold. And so that's a roundabout way of saying it's really great. The folks we have who are like that are really great. And, and those um, are the people you try to recruit. Exactly. And, um, you know, but you've, you're going to have sometimes friction here and there. I guess the, the advice that I once got from somebody was that was really good uh, in terms of, those times when maybe there's a message that needs to be communicated that's not yeah, a message you feel like communicating uh-huh. or it's not your favorite thing and all of us are I don't know I don't know how many people are really conflict seeking I mean we're, I think most of us lean toward conflict avoidance at mm-hmm. least or at least neutral in that regard right. but in any case the advice that was supported by a couple of you know papers this fellow sent me were was that uh, occasionally if you're in a, a position where you're directing a group or leading a group you sometimes have to flip the switch and become and play the role of the agent of the group and so that your message to an individual is not a personal message at mm-hmm. times but it's like okay it's this, this is what we as a group need to do like as agent of the group you're not you don't say those words of course mm-hmm. but as you have to then you're in, mentally i'm saying oh, as agent of the group this is a message i need to communicate so that the bigger goals uh, of the group are more easily realized and so it's it's a learning curve that I'm still struggling upwards on, I'm sure. <laughs> what 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 have you learned about leadership that you didn't know when you started? Is it hard is it harder to deliver bad news to your faculty than it is to your patients? Uh, is it more challenging? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, the challenges communications patients to Well, okay, so you know the sort of 
news that might occasionally have to be communicated with patients, right? I mean, it's that, yeah. well, I'm sorry to say this is, you know, glioblastoma is a terrible disease and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we're all, we've, I, I think we've, we've maybe over time all of us have grown up, uh, I don't want to say mm, a, a, a veneer or a, a layer of professional distance that we can insert in that conversation for the sake of, for both sides. I mean, you know, it's, you, you can't become emotionally involved in it. I mean, you're sympathetic and all that, but you, you will wear yourself out. I mean, that's a burnout prescription. If you, yeah. if you really got emotionally involved in the next five, you know, I'm using GBM as an example, pick right. pancreas cancer, then I don't know if you'll make it a year if you really, right. really, if, if that really is, if you process all that. So, so, so there's, there's a balance between empathy and I think, yeah. And, and being able to be professional and, and, and be dis- objective yeah, and yeah. doing the right thing for that person, advising them because you want to, them to receive the message and, and process it according to how they need to make their life plans, whatever. So there's that. Um, of course, with p- professional colleagues, it's it's never so clean, I don't think, as that, or it's never so maybe uh, routine, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's but it's just occasionally the case that you, you know, I, I don't want to emphasize the negative here because mm-hmm. I think the better okay. parts of it are to to build something, uh, build something, and to identify you know longer term strategies and things. Like this. I mean, you know, every place is different. So when I happened to just become in, in this particular position, there was a certain set of immediate objectives that sort of had to be done. No argument. We need to do this, that, and the other thing. Don't even think about it. However, it was recently that we did get to a point of maybe growth and complexity where it was about time to redefine a, a uh, you know, ar- articulate a, a strategy or a, a vision statement, if you will. And and we did actually just do that exercise over the past, uh, you know, six or 12 months, which had I not done that, had, had I maybe not had an occasion to be in, in a position of directing a group for a while, I might have thought that that was one of those, you know, twelve-step popular business book kind of right. things you do because well, you're supposed to do it every so often. Yeah. But there was something of, I think, something of value in the exercise. I hope there was something of value. I hope the faculty thought there was something of value. Naturally, not everyone will think it's a value. I'm hoping that ninety percent do, and uh, you know, kind of just realign the, you know, make sure the ocean liner is roughly going in the same direction. Although there's a lot of individual, you know, moving parts with it, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I. I, I, by no means I'm an expert, and I don't think I'll be writing a bestseller on the New York <laughs> Times. You know, I think list. it's a. I think it's a, Well, I guess I, I don't envy you. I think it's a tough job. I mean, I, I'm sure it must be tough because, um, you know, to kind of push on the analogy. I mean, to compare it to like, I, I, I try to I try to advise people that you know the things you should worry about are the things that are under your control. Um, you know, when we when we take care of patients. If you do everything as well as you possibly can do and outcomes don't go the way you want, that is deeply sad. I mean, and I think that inspires us to work better in terms of research and as a profession. But part of you also feels like you did the absolute best you could and you know this person got excellent care and that is a piece of, you know, it makes you feel, I guess, a little bit good about the the whole process. Um, But when you start talking about these interpersonal work relationships and you talk about the academic medical center, where there are big political movements, there's a lot of um, irrational, um, you know, systemic issues that put incentives in a foolish way and encourage kind of ridiculous behavior, and you try to navigate that kind of politics. 
I think it is challenging, um, and uh, I, I don't envy it because I think, um, you know, it must be very difficult to know if, um, I mean, on some, some things you surely must know this is the right decision, but some things you must, you know, still wish like, I'd love to change the whole system, but this is the system we're in, and we can only change this little tiny quadrant of it, and we have to do the best we can in our little space. I, I do think that there's, there's maybe a value to <clears throat> planned term limits of some sort, or mm. life cycles, if you will, because I, mean, I think a seven or eight year hitch is maybe a good thing. I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking back on this recent, you know, I was on the board of Astro, I'm, I'm the eighth year, and I'll be rotating off, and it's and it's time for other people to really step in and, and have some other thoughts. And they've got great ideas and great energy and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know exactly the length that's perfect, but maybe somewhere in the seven to 10 year range of being in this position of, you know, doing something, you you know, you get your chance, you do some things. And, you know, there's a lot of other really good people that are probably really ambitious and maybe can do some good things too. So I, I know certain organizations have that in place. I believe the Mayo Clinic will rotate leadership's positions every seven or eight years or something like that. Someone, can correct me if I'm wrong. One of your listeners will point this out. No, the man, no, you're wrong. They don't do that. I don't, don't know. worry. They'll just email me about it. Okay. Good. Um, but <laughs> but I think you're right. And uh, it, it's interesting to me that in medicine is one of these unique fields that um, we have de- we delay adulthood so long, you know, often by a decade um, that. You do see a lot of across the spectrum. I've joked that you're an elder statesman, but you're not really an elder statesman because you're, you're because in medicine there really are elder statesmen, and you're not even close to it. Um, that, but, but you find that people really are not achieving um, their peak career job until they are in their late sixties or seventies, even sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes and. Mm-hmm. And I think that contrasts with other professions where my understanding is it's the mid-40s where people tend to have mm-hmm. mid-40s to early 50s where they have their career peak. But in medicine, you're talking about, just look at CEOs of hospitals or deans of, of medical schools. You're talking late 60s to 70s even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then you also couple that with the fact that a lot of people are just absolutely unwilling to relinquish any power that they have spent time to amass. Mm-hmm. And um, that makes it challenging um, for, I think, new ideas to get injected, which inevitably have to happen. Um, And that is, I think, one of the interesting things about social media is that it really did kind of put that on its head, um, that there are a lot of people out there with different ideas. Some of them are bad ideas, too, let's be honest. They're not always good (laughs) ideas, but there's some of the bad (laughs) ideas. But uh, they are able to, you know, get some traction on those ideas in a way they didn't always um, get. Yep. How do you divide your time these days uh, between clinic, administrative duties, and research scholarship, and I guess broader national professional roles like astro president or uh, immediate post president? <laughs> I uh, fortunately we recently had one or two people join the group who are uh, replacing some folks who uh, an individual who left, and um, that's going to be a relief because I was actually absorbing a certain extra set of clinical responsibilities over the past few months, which was challenging. It was good, but challenging. And you mentioned that occasionally you'll cover a clinic where you have to do a mm-hmm. more general thing that's maybe outside your most familiar areas. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the last six or so months, I was actually in a position where I was obliged to cover the pediatric uh, radiation piece of it, which is something that you as quickly forget as, <laughs> as anything mm-hmm. if you're away from it. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a constantly evolving and morphing thing. Mm-hmm. But it was actually a fantastic thing because I, I want to say that 
you know, you talk about medicine, oncology as a really good field. Within that world, the world of pediatric oncology, I think it's just a magical place because I really think that there are, I really think that attracts good people and high character people. And there is this esprit de corps and there is this, this willingness to put uh, all the kids as many as possible on clinical trials and continue to learn and continue to improve and continue to inch forward that thing. And so I take no responsibility for that. It was just, it was fun to be a small part of the larger team for the Children's Hospital who was working next to us. So I just want to put that plug in there that I, I thought was a really Let me just amplify that. I mean, I think that's a great point that one of the uh, success stories in modern medicine has been pediatric uh, leukemia, mm-hmm. in part because for a great deal of time we're putting 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of, of kids with a certain condition on clinical trials and using that to leverage improved outcomes. That's a commitment to trials that you just don't see in other um, field. You know, we're three percent in adult I oncology. Know. I know it's, it's magnificent. So, I mean, I think it's a it's it's a hard field. So it it yeah. self selects people who really want to do that sort of thing as a really as a calling as much as anything. So, so I, I will say yeah. that although that was a, a little bit of a busy stretch, it was a very rewarding stretch just mm-hmm. to get to know those people again a little bit better. So anyway, that was that was good. But I, you know, I I still do. I mean, I would say the majority of my energy during a week. I can't tell you what. <laughs> my time distribution is mm-hmm. because I don't punch a clock because I'm afraid to, but, um, or I might actually punch a clock because I'm mad at it, <laughs> not in the same way. Anyway, but, you know, I still, I mean, the majority of what I do is still patient care. It's clinical medicine. And then mm-hmm. the other, whatever percentage of that is, you know, some combination of administrative and fun things. And, and the extracurricular stuff is really fun. I mean, it's been a really rewarding thing. I do encourage folks who are, you know, young, up and coming to become engaged in whatever professional society. I mean, I think you can make friends and I think you can, learn things that you might not have otherwise learned if you become, it can become involved in ASCO committees or ASTRO committees or whatever other society committees if, if you if you have the bandwidth. Um, for me, it was a, a way to meet people and get to know a few things that I would not otherwise have known. So I do enjoy very much saying that. I mean, it'll be a bit of a relief to be a little bit less committed. I mean, I would say that, you know, the past, I don't know, couple of years, if I had to put it in FTE terms, I, I don't know. I suppose it was something like a 0.3 or <laughs> 0.4 FTE commitment. I'm not really sure. I see. But it was just, you know, it was okay. Though. I mean, it was, just, it was just really, um, you know, cause there's a large team of people working uh, really hard to try to do the right thing. And do we always do the right thing? Well, I suppose in retrospect, some things could have been done differently. That might have been better. But I think the effort is there to try to do the right thing. Mm, that's good. Any final thoughts for our listening audience, Dr. Kavanaugh? This has been really a lot of fun. Yeah, I want to thank and you for coming on. I really have enjoyed uh, catching up again. And, and as I mentioned beforehand, I mean, I was going to call you and have a cup of coffee. We could have had this cup of conversation, but what the heck? Let's just record it. Let's you know? just record so, it. That, uh, that's, that's, that's what was inspired the idea for the podcast. Uh, <laughs> but I've had a few people who were willing to have a cup of coffee and say a lot of things, but they're unwilling to be recorded. So I oh, commend you okay. for having the courage to come and get oh, recorded. Boy. But I thought, I think it's a, I think listeners will find this, you know, very interesting. I think um, a, a lot of people listen to this podcast are in medical school or in residency, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think they 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 don't know about you know a lot about radiation oncology. Um, heck, there are even some medical oncologists who don't know enough about radiation <laughs> oncology. Um, but I I think it. it it speaks to you know the themes I thought were very interesting is you know how academic careers can pull you in a way you didn't expect. I, I found it very interesting to hear about uh, you know how it was kind of a fluke pairing that led to this whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess I think probably the fact that you still see patients so much is um, uh, probably why 
you're a good leader because I think that's that's one of the things that I always struggle with is that sometimes people get so removed from the day to day, you know, they kind of forget what it's like for those of us on the front lines. Um, and uh, but I thought there's just a wealth of pearls. And uh, so thank you so much for coming here, Dr. Kavanaugh. My pleasure. Anytime. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.